This year sees the major milestone of the 100-year anniversary of the outbreak of the Great War, an event that has scarred modern history and led to the collapse of no less than four empires. For many, the war is defined by mud, trenches, rats, and unspeakable loss of life. While it's true that the war on the Western Front did indeed spiral into stalemate warfare, in other theatres of the war, especially in the East, the fighting took on a much more fluid nature, with vast outflanking movements and even the use of cavalry. It's also true that the war lasted for four years, and during that time, the weather, of course, was not always wet. Even though the water table in northern France and Belgium is high, not all the trenches were full of mud all of the time. And the dust and rock-hard ruts brought a misery all of their own. The Great War is full of tales, stories of valour, horror and grief. But arguably one of the more enduring narratives is the so-called Christmas Truce of 1914. The story has been told in many different ways, and in popular memory the events of that Christmas Eve are well entrenched. For example, the cold wind whipped flakes of snow across the battlefield, and then suddenly from the German positions the faint sound of singing drifted over the waste of no man's land. The song was recognisable as Silent Night, a carol well known to both sides. When the watery sun broke through the stillness of that first Christmas morning of the war, young men found their thoughts dwelling on the family Christmases of their childhood. The imaginary smell of baking puddings, roasting meat, and the excitement of opening a stocking full of promise dominated the morning. So much so that the trenches were quieter than usual, with each man wrapped up in his own thoughts. It was then that cries of Merry Christmas, Tommy, echoed over the desolation of the battlefield. The British were wary. Could this be a trick? But the appearance of hastily written signs, and even the odd Christmas tree on top of the trenches, pointed to an honest attempt by the Germans to mark the day in some way. Eventually, shapes began to clamber out of the trench system, and slowly began advancing towards the barbed wire and the sworn enemy, just across this dismal landscape. Troops from both sides began to greet each other with stiff handshakes and nods, cigarettes were exchanged, photographs shared, and together the two armies of the Western Front became a mass of humanity, singing songs, handing around drinks and even playing football. Well, this Dickensian scene was not destined to last long, however, and soon enough the guns erupted along the line, with each side blaming the other for the end of the truce. It may have been short-lived, but the truce of 1914 has epitomised for many the true spirit of Christmas. Well, that then is the narrative as many of us would have heard it, and regardless of whether or not the events of the Christmas truce unfolded in that way, it's still a fascinating topic to examine. As we would probably guess, the reality of the events of Christmas Day 1914 were much less romantic, and given the nature of the conflict, that should come as no surprise. The evidence, such as it is from the men themselves, does not really tell the story of a unified experience. Some parts of the line reported much fraternisation, while others saw little or even none at all. Now we can assume that an event like this would have made a huge impact on the men who experienced it, so a lack of evidence in journals and letters is quite telling. Maybe the information was censored, 
but that does not explain the relative lack of memories from men who came home afterwards. Also, many accounts of the events were written many, many years after 1914. And by that time, the truce had already carved itself a niche in popular memory. What we can say with confidence, however, is that some sort of truce was held along the Western Front during the Christmas of 1914, but that it was sporadic along the line. It may help to see the truce in the context of the early war years. For many, the great war that had arrived in the late summer of 1914 was destined to be over by Christmas, and the overwhelming emotion in the long recruitment lines of the combatants was one of excitement and anticipation. At last, the young men of 1914 had the chance to make a name for themselves, a way of showing the older male members of their family that had fought in myriad Victorian small wars that they were carved from the same stave. Nobody expected the kind of war that unfolded, and after the few weeks of movement, the Western Front settled down into an unbroken line of trenches that ran from the Swiss border to the coast. Stalemate had settled over the front line. In retrospect, the impact of technologies such as the widespread use of reliable belt-fed machine guns, high-explosive shells, and eventually the coming of poison gas, tanks, and even aircraft, taken together with the slightly outmoded tactics popular in many armies of the day, all go to make the terrible conditions of the war less of a surprise. But in 1914, much of that was a long way away. Britannia and her empire ruled the waves, and when the lion roared, the cubs of the white dominions and the rest of the empire answered the call, with troop ships setting sail for England from all over the world. Once the promise of an early breakthrough had faded, the call to dig in saw the front line stagnate into a series of zigzag constructions that would hold many thousands of men, peering nervously at the enemy across the battlefield, who were most likely nervously looking back. The trenches themselves were never meant to be permanent, and in fact for the British and French, who had the job of pushing the Germans out of territory they'd occupied, too much comfort was frowned upon. Nothing should be done to encourage the Allied soldier to stay in the trench. So makeshift trenches were the order of the day. The German troops were much more likely to make the best of the land they'd captured, and they indeed had deep dugouts, reinforced trench walls, even the occasional carpet-lined command post could be found. And if we were making some very basic judgments here, I suppose the German positions were the best, followed by the French, and finally the British. However, both sides existed in an alien landscape of death and squalor, and were at the mercy of whatever the weather threw at them. There was a shared experience of trench life. Something else to consider here is that for the men on both sides, the landscape of the war was beyond imagining. Chewed up trees, shell holes covering the ground, fields of crops laid low and turned into ploughed death traps. And even on a break behind the lines, troops would find that many of the villages of the region were partly destroyed by the long-range shell fire. This was not a world they recognised. The sound of war may have been heard on the south coast of Britain, but the environment of the trenches seemed a million miles away from home. For many, on both sides of the trenches, the experience of those early months of the war had not necessarily followed the stereotype of the enemy being barbaric and evil. 
the troops on both sides were, for the most part, ordinary family men, with photographs of loved ones tucked away in the tunic, be that khaki or field grey. Given the shocking conditions and the sense of disconnection from the world they knew, perhaps we can get a glimpse into why the truce happened in 1914, and never again with any great significance in the following years. The trench lines that were at the centre of the Christmas truce ran for roughly 30 miles and were occupied by British and German troops. It was along this front where the distance between the two sides could in some places be measured in as little as 30 yards where the fraternisation occurred. It's worth noting that given the often small distance between the sides, it was common to shout and respond to the enemy in the opposite trench. It was also not unheard of for small, often brief truces to be called on particular sections of the line. A temporary ceasefire to retrieve a body or two could be arranged. This too became much less common as the war dragged on and the casualty lists grew. It would be the special emotion attached to Christmas that was to encourage this back-and-forth shouting to transform it into something much more significant. The British troops had received a gift from home, a parcel from the daughters of the King and Queen, a metal box containing chocolate, tobacco, as well as tinned Christmas puddings, while across no man's land the Kaiser had supplied tobacco and even some pipes to smoke it with. Individual families had of course sent gifts too, balaclava helmets, gloves, socks, scarves, all to keep the cold out, as well as sweets, tin goods and plenty of cigarettes. The opening and the sharing of these parcels from home no doubt boosted morale, but also invited a tinge of nostalgia into the trenches, as thoughts of loved ones by the fire at home filled the soldiers' minds. It was on Christmas Eve 1914, a cold but clear evening, that the events of the truce began to unfold. Depending on where on the line the information comes from, it would seem that German troops began singing Christmas carols, and calling out Christmas greetings. Later, and in English, these same voices asked for a ceasefire on Christmas Day. All through the night, reports came in of sporadic firing, but perhaps at a much lower level than usual, and as dawn broke and the stand too was ordered, a silence had descended over the battlefield. The sound of whistling wind replaced the sound of war. Eventually, this silence was broken by singing in some sections of the line. Other areas tell of dwarf pine trees being placed above the parapet, with hastily scribbled messages of greeting. It was reported later by the Press Association that, quotes, Their trenches were a blaze of Christmas trees, and our sentries were regaled for hours with the traditional Christmas songs of the fatherland. Interestingly, those sections of the line occupied by the famous Indian unit, the Garwal Rifles, noted how the candles reminded them of the Festival of Lights. Once verbal communication between the two sides was opened up, it was just a matter of time before they would arrange to meet in the war-torn landscape of the battlefield. Many soldiers' accounts tell of the back-and-forth conversations that took place, for example, uh, a letter from Private H. Scrutton of the Essex Regiment, in which he details the way each side promised the other that the ceasefire would be respected, and how this led to men on both sides 
slowly clambering out of the trenches, unarmed. What happened when the two sides met depended again on the section of the line, but there is a general agreement from the accounts that survive that some activities were present in most areas. There was time given to burying the dead in no man's land. Men swapped jokes and told stories in broken English or German. Tobacco was shared, as was the occasional drink, and even souvenirs were traded. Both sides engaged in singing, a remarkable example of how important music is to the human animal. One of the best-known activities of that day was the playing of football. Now, the main evidence for this was printed in the London Times on January the 1st, 1915, and quoted a major as stating, quote, The regiment actually had a football match with the Saxons, who beat them 3-2. German soldier Kurt Zemisch penciled into his diary the extract, claiming that The English brought a soccer ball from the trenches, and pretty soon a lively game ensued. How marvellously wonderful, and yet how strange it all was. These accounts, and a few vague mentions of games being played in letters, etc., were to be backed up as late as 1983, when Early Williams, a British veteran of the war, went on record, saying, The ball appeared from somewhere, I don't know where, but it came from their side. It wasn't from our side that the ball came. They made up some goals, and one fellow went in goal, and then it was just a general kickabout. I should think there were about a couple of hundred taking part. There were no referees and no score, no tally at all. It was simply a melee, nothing like the soccer you see on television. Taking all the evidence together, it would seem that impromptu games did take place, with tin cans being used instead of a ball in some cases. And not all accounts mention the two sides playing each other. Perhaps a kickabout between the troops was more in evidence. Amazing, though this fraternisation was, clearly the high command on both sides could not allow it to continue. They had a war to win, and shooting people you'd shared Christmas with was not seen as being good for morale. In some places, the trenches held for most of the 25th, and in a few areas, hostilities did not start again until even Boxing Day was over. Uh, a Captain Dunn of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers spoke of the ending of a truce, in a very theatrical way. At 8.30, I fired three shots in the air and put up a flag with Merry Christmas on it, and I climbed on the parapet. The Germans put up a sheet with Thank You written on it, and the German captain appeared on his parapet. We both bowed and saluted, got down into our respective trenches, he fired two shots on the air, and the war was on again. Although history tells us that a widespread truce like that of 1914 was not to happen again, it is still fascinating that for a very short time, over a couple of days, ordinary men came together to celebrate their humanity and put to one side the impulse for war. Whether we focus on the positives of the event or the sad fact that it was not repeated is really a matter of glass half full or half empty. But the words of a Scottish officer writing in the Times in 1915 should touch a nerve as we see out our current Christmas festivities. It is a great hope for future peace when two great nations, hating each other as foes, have seldom hated, one side vowing eternal hatred and vengeance, and setting their venom to music, should, on Christmas Day, and for all that that word implies, lay down their arms 
exchange smokes and wish each other happiness. Christmas truce, Seaton and Brown. And with that, I'd like to wish everybody out there a very happy new year from all at Rifle and Pack.